welcome back to Dumb Dive. My name is Arvind. I'm Pranav. And we're back again after a while. And it seems like you, Pranav, have been up to some adventures of sorts, <laughs> hiking yeah. through the middle of the UK, all up to yeah. some good and maybe some no good. What's been up? Well, I mean, so so before that, like, so the preface is basically, I've been looking for part-time work since January and... Um, I finally finally got signed on to a temporary event staffing agency, you know, that kind of thing. So they provide waiting staff and catering staff, kitchen assistants, bar, bartenders for like various events. And I think India has like a very similar gig economy like that. Um, but yeah, so I, I got signed on because I wanted to experience that kind of life for a bit. I felt like it's it's essential to being a student abroad to, you know, do this kind of stuff, um, especially at master's level, you know. And it's good life experience. So, yeah, finally. So, Friday and Saturday were my first shifts ever doing this kind of thing. Um, and I have to say, I felt like a natural behind the bar, pouring people, pouring people like beers and ciders and just like, you know, overall just making sure, you know, my hospitality skills were tested <laughs> a little bit. But yeah, so my shift uh, yesterday was in the middle of nowhere. Um, in this place called Alcester, which is uh, like away from Redditch, which is f- like an hour away from where I live, which is Birmingham. And my God, but like going there in the morning wasn't that much of an issue. It was like a 40 minute cab ride and it cost me 20, 20 pounds, which I mean, 20 pounds is 20 pounds. It's a lot of money. But it is, you know, I yeah. was like, fine. Did you, I was like, fine, did you whatever. Did that with anyone else or was that just you? No, no, no. It was just me. Um, I mean, 20 pounds is 20 pounds, but like public transport would have taken like around 15 pounds regardless. Hmm. And um, it would have taken me like four hours to get there by public transport. So I said, you know what? Forget it. I'll just take a cab, get there on time for my shift. And then I'll leave and take public transport on the way back. Um, so my shift ended at 5.30 in the evening, you know, I clocked out, um, it was all good. I walked out of where I was working, um, which it's, uh, which in itself was like a 20 minute walk from the bar I was working at on the event, uh, site to all, to like the entrance of the venue. It was like a 20 minute walk that way. Cause it was just gigantic. Um, uh, because it was like this camping thing for like, um, farmers and upper middle class people who own a lot of land. So it's just like hunting rifle scopes and like fishing gear, dog training, um, barbecues, you know, like farmer stuff. Wait, that itself sounds fascinating. Did you get to see closer any of those activities? I mean, like I walked around a bit and like saw what people were like doing and everything. And it was, it's not as interesting as I make it seem. It's just like a bunch of stalls and a bunch of you know, rich, drunk, <laughs> northern white people just like doing their thing, you know? Mm. I, I mean, I, I mean, it's just, it's just that, you know? It was nothing like super interesting apart from the premise itself, just because it's a little alien to us. Um, but yeah, I'm so I finished curious, my bar. Yeah, before, yeah, before yeah. you got onto the bar duty, did you mm-hmm. get any training? Because you're not really, I mean, no. you've <laughs> <No. laughs> done this before. <laughs> Well, I mean, not professionally. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. not professionally. Um, but anyway, so so I finished my shift, walked out, and uh, 
I couldn't get a cab uh, back to Birmingham because there was just like the the so my Uber app just doesn't work for some reason. It still shows me in Chennai, even though I've switched my Play Store region. I've done all of that stuff. Okay. Uh, I switched my Play Store region. I've updated my card to be a UK card, and um, I've I I like keep my location access on because I use a smartwatch now. So Uber knows, like Uber should know that I'm in bloody Birmingham. but it still shows me in chennai for some reason so uber just doesn't work for me and the other ride the other ride chennai service, not even uh, mumbai or delhi no chennai <laughs> i don't know why i i don't know why um <laughs> uh, yeah so so the other ride serv- the other ride service thing which is um, called bolt that uh, just didn't have any just didn't have any cabs in that area So I was like, okay, fine. I mean, I'll I'll try and find a bus or something. Then turns out the the bus that I was supposed to take is uh it it only shows up like twice a day, and the next time it was showing up was at eight thirty in the morning the next day. I was like, okay, okay, I'm not I'm not staying over at camping grounds at bloody eight thirty in the morning, you know. Yeah. I, I'm not gonna stay over because I one is like I'm not prepared for this, and two is I don't want to be there anymore. I want to get back to my room. Um so that okay fine. What's the nearest way for me to get back to Birmingham? And the the nearest way for me to get back was to do a 7 mile literal trek uh to the nearest train station and then take a train to Warwick, switch over at Warwick and then take a train from Warwick to Birmingham. Also, and, when I spoke uh, to you uh, while you were doing this walk, I think you told me it was like a twenty-three <laughs> kilometer walk that you were supposed to do. That you, I guess, on the way you figured out a shortcut and dropped it down. No, to, no, no. Uh, it was it was in twenty-three like kilometers. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twelve kilometers. So there was no shortcuts. Twelve kilometers was just the least amount I'd have to walk. Oh right, you said like two and a half hours or something. I think I. Yeah, yeah. Said. It was a two and a half hour walk. Yeah, yeah. it was a two and a half hour walk that I ended up doing in two hours. So go me. Um, but yeah, it was a seven mile, eleven and a half kilometer walk, and like it was, it was just there was no civilization. It was just farmland on either side, no houses. It was a highway as well, just nothing there. <laughs> I didn't see a Tesco for seven miles, which is, which is like that's the marker. That's when you know you're in the middle of nowhere when there's no Tesco for seven miles. <laughs> um, yeah. So I did the I did the twelve hour thing in two hours. I had to do a cheeky bit of trespass to get onto the station from where I had to take my train because there was no other entrance. The only entrance was through private land. I don't know why the only entrance was through private land so finally got onto the platform I was uh, 45 minutes um, early so I just sat there and as soon as I sat down that's when all the pain hit my legs like just absolute misery <laughs> cuz I mean I I, I like uh, if if you've ever been to Tiruvannamalai there's like the a walk that everyone does yeah, around the hill yeah, before yeah, they enter the yeah. temple It's very. Yeah, I think that's in, uh, also about the same distance. Tirupati, right? Tirupati as well, of course. Like you have to climb yeah. the stairs all the way to the top, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You just walk uh, on on flat ground for 
probably the same distance about 10 kilometers oh oh i didn't i didn't mention this wasn't entirely flat ground <laughs> i walked over like five hills <laughs> just to get to the station <laughs> that was part of the thing i didn't notice elevation at all cuz you don't see elevation on maps oh mm. uh, it was it was absolute pain like my the the walk was longer than my playlist <laughs> it was it was it was painful but you know aside from aside from the lovely lovely trek which to be very honest it was it was some much needed exercise um so you know at least at least that happened aside from that though like the part time work here has been it's been fun like mm-hmm. genuinely the i had a 10 hour shift on friday and an 8 hour shift yesterday and when i told my dad this he was like oof 10 hours that's torture and i was like it really wasn't because all i was doing was pouring beer for drunk drunk rich people you know mm. it's it's not that hard of a job i just had to say hi uh doing all right what would you like pint of lager yeah sure anything else right cash a card you know that's that's like the entire spiel that's it that's the end of my yeah. that's the end of each thing and you know the tills also like super easy to work like i didn't find mm. it that difficult to do and somehow you know indian genes are still active so i can do mental math so it's it's not that difficult to do all the adding up and everything as well yeah and i mean to be fair you did almost <laughs> go all the way to be an engineer so well you, that that's you, you, that's going a bit far i did 2 years <laughs> round up <laughs> round up yeah fair enough <laughs> well but yeah i mean close enough you can do 2 years and just Anytime anyone asks you, Pretend. if you if you have yeah. an engineering degree, just be like, yeah, round yeah. up, yeah, approximate. Fake it till I make it. Yeah, yeah fake it till I make it. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. But I mean, to be fair, that's what I was doing with vast off duty, just faking it till I made it. Yeah. And like, no one on shift could tell that it was like my first time behind the bar, except for like the one guy who I said, "Hey, can you just teach me all the till box? Because it's my first time." And he just like quickly ran me through, and and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool, got it." But and like after that it was just chill okay. like no one else no one else realized that it was my first time behind the bar which is just as well because otherwise i would have been put on um waiting staff and i don't want to do i don't want to do waiter duty that sounds horrible <laughs> uh, and like, luckily walk- it sounds like this was mostly just beer like you didn't have to pour mixes i mean cocktails. i had to make like i had to make like gin and tonics and like vodka sprites that kind of stuff Simple so stuff, yeah. yeah 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 nothing fancy you know i didn't have to make like a a, a shaken not stirred martini while glancing at a dr- bottle of dry vermouth in the corner and like two <laughs> two cubic ounces of like olive juice or whatever like i didn't have to do any of those fancy cocktails it's just like super basic gin and tonic what are these measurement i don't know man i'm just coming up with something <laughs> cubic ounce <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why why is cracking me up so much for just like, <laughs> is it an ounce already a unit of volume I'm just like what yeah I know I like, know in what dimensionality is this, this cubic ounce um it's six dimensionality <laughs> god I think you forget that I'm not human <laughs> I'm a higher dimensional being posing as a human <laughs> um uh, but you know I mean all jokes aside the shifts were easy 
the team I was the team I was working with on both days they were like super helpful super chill lots of banter and like just good energy all around and yeah. i mean for 18 hours of work i'm getting paid like almost 200 pounds so yeah i mean decent money out of it you know covers your cab ride and a few meals uh i mean so friday i got like transport to and from uh and both days i got like i mean well yesterday i didn't get i didn't get lunch but like i ma- i had like the sensible thing of packing a meal deal for myself mm. so shout like yesterday was once again shout out to tesco man tesco just saves me every time i need it <laughs> someone needs to start a counter of how many minutes we can go before shouting out tesco cuz it's already uh, to happened to be honest i think this episode yeah i mean since i've come here i think honestly every episode i've shouted out tesco just cuz they've saved my life <laughs> so many times <laughs> uh getting back to the entire thing you know like the gig economy here is super interesting cuz um for 2 weeks of work which is you know like for 40 hours of work i'm basically making my entire month's allowance mm-hmm. so i i like um if i do another couple of shifts next week i basically made 400 pounds or yeah, like true. maybe slightly less i made like 380 or something because it's not exactly 20 hours that i'm working it's a little bit less yeah and also when you when you have to cut out the amount of Uh, yeah 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 that is like travel just getting there because yeah. it's fun yeah 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 cutting out travel and if i have to buy myself food then cutting that out it's like it's still like 350 to 400 like it's in the range of 350 to 400 yeah which is my monthly allowance yeah and like mom was asking me hey can you you know cuz like my plan is to stay here till you know my student visa runs out while i'm applying for a phd or something and mom was like hey can you sustain yourself and still work on your phd on like this kind of part time thing and i was like well i mean yeah cuz i'll be able to do 30 hours to 35 hours a week you know and i can spread it out over a few days i can get an actual shift at like a decent bar spread it out over like a week do 30 hours like so maybe 5 hours every day in the evenings and just leave one day just not doing anything and that's still like a lot of money that i'll be making so that you know, actually more... uh, it, it it makes me think uh, how much authority do you have on setting uh, limits on when where how you want to work when you're working uh, with these type of agencies um so uh, they they just have a bunch of shifts that they put up mm-hmm. and you can apply it to like a lot of them and then they approve you and then you go for that that's it so it's more like uh, they put up postings and you apply for it rather than they yeah. offering it to you yeah, yeah yeah they don't assign anything it's just you post okay. it and they either approve you or say sorry you've not been selected that's it okay okay that makes sense so i mean th- that's the thing though like you know working 6 may working 5 to 6 hours every night for a week you know doing 30 hours a week Honestly that that'll net you like a solid if you're getting paid like 10 pounds an hour you're you're getting 300 pounds a week. Mm-hmm. And you know rent isn't going to be rent's going to be a chunk of that of course but you're not going to spend more than like 200 pounds a week. Mm. Like it's really difficult to do that if you're just like chilling maybe planning to go out every couple of nights for like a drink or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're not going to end up spending that much. 
so so like mom was asking me hey can you can you like survive on that much can you like handle yourself can you like carry yourself through this time and i'm like yeah like surprisingly you can even if you're working minimum wage 6 hours and 6 hours a day for like a week you can very very not very easily but you can most likely carry yourself through yeah but again it is which is you're carrying yourself through and it's not like you're saving no 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 you'll be able to much. save a bit of money too yeah but like, like that's a little bit pounds. like it will go off in your uh on and off un, uh, unseen exp- uh, like expenses it's not a no, lot no. no i'm saying like you can save 50 pounds guaranteed every week mm. if you if you work for 300 pounds a week you can save a solid 50 pounds a week out of that mm. I, and like like there's there's a lot that accounts for unseen expenses as well like it's really chill surprisingly so every mm-hmm. month you can honestly like if you if you work out your budgeting decent enough you can save a solid 200 pounds every month working mm-hmm. 30 hours a week this is just minimum wage gig economy stuff you can do that yeah which you know it makes me think about like similar situations in india where like i've spoken to waiting staff and i've spoken to catering staff and it's not as easy for them like they're oh, stretched thin more. even and if you're working at really decent hotels yeah. or restaurants you're not getting paid at anything reasonable at all yeah, when yeah, you're yeah. working like, in uh, that industry yeah they have to take like multiple shifts that last like 12 hours like every day so like which is why like mom and dad were so reluctant about me getting into this kind of thing but i have so many friends here who gotten into it saying do do it it's mm. just a chill experience you will enjoy it mm. none of us plan to do this as like a proper job later it's just part of the experience of being a student here you should do it and i was like yeah i want to so when i finally got it mom and dad were like oh is that like you know like cuz cuz again they come from the indian paradigm where hospita- hospitality is like If you're on the management and organizational side, it's great. If you're not, mm-hmm. if you're on the staff side, the service industry. Yeah, the service industry is just like it is a bit nightmarish. Um but yeah, like that's that's kind of like my starting experience with this. I I enjoyed my time. Like I said, like the teams were super nice. Hmm. I mean, nothing to complain. Yeah, that's it. It's a good start. Except except for the 11 hour walk. <laughs> I think I think I was a bit unhinged when I was texting all of you guys. Yes. <laughs> I was like genuinely concerned because I'm, I was just not sure if you even knew what you were doing. Oh, But dude, anyway, I was I was dying. I was sweating so hard and it was like 12 degrees and I was still sweating. Yes. Cuz oh, no, I mean, I mean uh, that's another thing. So the there has been pretty like much spoken about heat, heat wave going on yeah, yeah. in Europe right now how oh, i mean the... um it was really bad for that one week where there was a heat wave mm. like it was it was horrible it was i think you sent me a photo where chennai was like 32 degrees or something and birmingham mm. was at 41 yeah <laughs> and it was at 41 the entire week Oh god. The lowest it went to was 25 at night. <laughs> um and like the rooms here are meant to keep heat in and 
it's really dry as well it's not like humid so it's it's like it's horrible inside the rooms at times but you know right now it's like pretty fine it's like 30 degrees outside right now and at night it goes down to 12 so it's back to normal yeah, that's nice yeah And like yesterday yesterday was like really nice because it was overcast um you know a bit of drizzle when I got back to Birmingham but like other than that it was like super chill. Mm. Yeah. I mean it was like the the weather itself was fine it was just I had to walk 7 miles and I had to do it like fast cuz <laughs> if I missed that train <laughs> the next train was at 9:30 in the morning the next day. There's no Airbnbs, no bed and breakfasts, nothing nearby. you know so i would have had to camp out in the station and i didn't have anything to camp out in other than my jacket and i would have needed to wear my jacket cuz it would have gotten really cold and rainy so you know i i power walked and ran my way to the station got there 45 minutes before time and you know finally made it to birmingham um i didn't join my friends clubbing um like bunch of them went out clubbing yesterday for like a friend's birthday and i was like dude No, I worked 18 hours over 2 days. I slept 2 hours in between the shifts. Brother, you you uh, I again like you did this for 2 days. Is this back to back sustainable? Yeah, yeah, because the rest of the days is just me sitting in my room working on my dissertation, you know. Fair enough. So like this is like honestly, I I'm like while I talk about how much pain I'm in and like my legs feel like, you know, <laughs> I was telling I I mean it's not just about not being used to it you know like um I mean I have like previous injuries as well so like it definitely aggravated them a bit like my ligament injury and like I have problems with the tendons in my knees so mm. you know a long walk uh, and a stressful walk I will say it was like kind of stressed um just because of the fact that I had to get to the station in time kind of thing So that aggravated my leg injuries a bit. Nothing too bad. Like it's just my legs are in pain, but you know, it's not like that horrible thing where I know I'll need to go to the doctor because I've like inflamed my ligament or like I've overstretched my ten- tendons or whatever like that. Right. It's just like, you know, it's just pain. But because of the previous injuries it's worse. But more than anything, I'm just happy I got to, I got to do that walk yesterday because I want to be able to get out of my room a couple of days a week. and just like you know do a shift and then travel back and just like enjoy that experience you know have two days where i'm not doing my work where i'm like seeing something doing something new meeting new people even if it's just you know doing the bartender spiel of like hi can i get you a beer kind of thing yeah yeah i think and, i think you know, the also the the experience of just having to constantly meet or interact with so many different kinds of people itself is going yeah. to be uh, it it can be both interesting and also just good life experience on learning how to deal with yeah exactly uh, i mean it like to be honest my shifts yesterday and day before just proved to me that i'm sociable and not social yes <laughs> cuz like 2 minutes into the shift i knew i was like oh my god at the end of this i want to go to my room and not talk to anyone for a week <laughs> but but the entire time in the shift you know i was joking around with the customers i was super cordial had a good smile on my face talked to like people talked like the people working with me the other bar staff and it was like it was all around just a good time you know so yeah. it just proved to me like hey you know i am sociable i can very easily just keep talking and like do this kind of thing for like 10 12 13 hours at a stretch 
that's completely fine like it's not easy but it's fine i just i at the end of that i do feel like just marinating in my room for a while you know <laughs> i think i think that's natural bro yeah but you know all said and done like really really solid experiences i i'm enjoying it a lot so far there's just two shifts let's see what the next two bring exactly exactly let's see anyway let's uh, uh maybe uh move on so to a moving on topic. from gig economy and stuff wait you sent me like a seriously interesting collection of quotes um from yes. like a book you were reading yes so i've been reading this book uh, god human animal thing it's genuinely a really really wonderful uh series of essays to put it in uh, in some way uh, about artificial intelligence consciousness a lot of philosophy topics hmm. that are simplified to uh, it feels like it's written for someone like me who understands tech uh, to a pretty solid extent or at least is very interested in tech like that that might be a better descriptor for a lot of the other people yeah. listening to this for example uh, i do work in tech so i might be a bit more deeply invested in this but right. it's coming at that sort of perspective on someone who is very interested in tech and someone and the author Megan O'Gibbon uh, again mm-hmm. uh, pardon me for my pronunciation but i'll put a link to it in the in the episode uh, as always <laughs> and uh, so she i believe comes uh, from a, a background in her education where she went to uh, a school of divinity or theology or something of that kind and had like mm-hmm. very strong uh, religious education roots and then oh i mean sorry just getting... to break in with a tangent just to break in with a tangent i think in most schools philosophy religion and theology studies are always classed together at least in the uk i've seen that mm-hmm. these three schools are put together yeah just because in theology and in religious studies there's a very similar philosophical rigor to how they develop their arguments in favor of god or whatever they're discussing at that point and it's it's super interesting um yeah just sorry i i just wanted to break in with that for a second because it, oh yeah, yeah, yeah it no, just no, like, no. Uh, that actually it struck me while i was uh, yeah uh, that's a, a, that's almost like a point that uh, she brings up herself in the book where oh. she talks about a lot of the parallels and thought that she's mm-hmm. had in her three sort of prongs of education and learning that she's been through with theology and religious studies and then mm-hmm. philosophy and uh, technology Right. Uh, and so yeah so this book is a lot of her thoughts on interacting with technology and robots and devices mm-hmm. uh, and trying to dig in at uh, a lot of the philosophical topics that she has internalized in different ways so she bought that robot dog ibo i think it was sony uh, if i'm not mistaken yeah, that yeah, made this yeah. it was like a really a kind of bizarre but like very very fascinating metallic robot dog that uh, was made that would do things like uh, w- like wag its tail and look at uh, an owner yeah. and fetch a ball and do some small things like that that you would expect very much act like an actual puppy i remember exactly. seeing this in like toy stores like yeah, the big is... ones 
quite a while back though i yeah, i don't know yeah. exactly when this is out but like i feel 8 to 10 years maybe i don't i know. i honestly think it was before that it was like back when i was in cairo maybe because i remember seeing it in like the dubai airport mall and like those kinds of like really big shopping centers you know where like people with money come into splurge that's where like they showcased it and i i did see like demonstrations of ibo and everything yeah Which i okay. i just i just think it's super cool and also yeah, like just, the name, i just looked the it naming up the, of the f- project itself Ibo, it's cute. Yeah, I, I mean, it's cute, and doesn't Ibo mean like pal or like companion or something? I think so. Yeah. 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 Like, like someone close to you, kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I just looked it up. It the first model came out in '99, and they kept releasing yeah. improvements until 2006. So. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. So uh, it it's not a new thing. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, and no. you you can definitely expect that the level of intelligence was also not not even to the level of things that you're seeing right now that are happening. Yeah, it, it wasn't as intelligent of, as even like Google Assistant. Exactly, it's far behind that. This mm-hmm. is very clearly fixed set of rules type of programming, and uh, on first interaction with it, you kind of feel it, especially if you're coming. Uh, do it as someone from tech where you kind of know how yeah. things are implemented you would feel oh if i touch the top sensor this is how it's going to interact type right right a thing but but this author she gets into how uh she saw it first as that type of metallic robot thing and then mm-hmm. once you start interacting with it and seeing it respond in you know life like ways in interactions in that exactly in quotation marks interactions that don't seem necessary for a robot to do but for some right. reason had been programmed in by the creators that make it feel more lifelike for it to shake its head when it's looking mm. at something or wag its tail or whatever it feels lifelike and that got her to start treating it uh, unconsciously as something as like a, a real pet dog so mm-hmm. the way uh, people started speaking to that dog became more uh you know the the baby talk kind of voice instead right, right. like the fact that she was even speaking to it uh, in, even though it only had voice recognition for like 60 words or something like that <laughs> it doesn't really understand sentences it's just a few fixed words uh that it knew but you're still talking to it in sentences and trying to have conversations and see how it responds and give meaning to the responses right. that it, it it does to things you say or do to it uh mm-hmm. i think that was a very important uh, point that she brought where it's like you start uh like bringing in life to this thing just because it starts to show that small tendencies that feel life like you're just so willing to imbue yeah. it with consciousness of a sort right i think uh, you I want think it's to kind believe of projection it. though isn't it it is it is but yeah, yeah. and i think well i mean there's two there's two kind of aspects i want to bring in here one is for some reason it reminds me of like the entire um uh naturalism movement where like you imbue facets of nature with personality you know 
Yes. Or like you personify like the wind and you know the weather and the seasons themselves and that kind of thing. Um I don't know for some reason like this kind of projection of life onto AI or like onto a robot um it just it kind of it gives me the same feeling as like the the that naturalism movement and I can't like pinpoint why. Right. So that's just like one interesting like thing that i wanted to say um and the second is it 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 it, remi- it um reminds me of this um i can't remember the exact paper um i will i'll i'll put the link in the description when i remember it if i remember it but it was this argument about um one of the hard questions of consciousness which we've spoken about in a previous episode um which is the the notion of first person experience you know um why do why do we experience the world the way we do why is it that i can say like oh i had that experience of walking 7 miles yesterday you know mm-hmm. putting aside the fact that i feel pain in my legs that you know that physical proving of the fact that i did that experience you know um how is it that i'm able to recount it how is it that i'm able to you know say that i went through it that feeling of identity and personification and first person experience is one of the big questions in our consciousness and i think in that episode also i brought up like the 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 statement of what it is to be like as being the super influential thing in that field of study mm. where it's it, it's a way of like you know it's a way of opening up the discussion and saying okay what we're talking about is what it's like to be you or me or like another person it just opens up that um that field a little bit more mm. but also Oh, uh, there's this. The paper I was reading um, claimed, you know, that there there may not be anything it's like to be anyone else. You know, it's prob there's probably something it's like to be humans, just because our culture and society and linguistical ability has evolved to an extent where we no longer live in a world where we just deal only with objects. We deal with symbols of objects. and you know thus the world has become symbolic rather than objective for us mm. which um so so like when i see a tree i no longer just perceive the object of the tree mm. you know i i refer to the symbol which is the word tree or it could be like me pointing at the tree and saying oh hey look at that and i don't need to explicitly use the symbol i can point at it as a symbol itself because of language because of culture and the way our cognitive abilities have grown so much through socialization etc 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 through like that entire anthropological thing mm. we have we have grown past an objective world so for humans there's probably something it's like to be uh, you know another human just because we live in this symbolic world which is all we know but there may not be anything it's like to be a bat or an animal or anything else you know mm. because they don't live in symbolic worlds for them the world is purely objective the bat doesn't need to know that the bat doesn't need to know the word tree to avoid it when it's flying you know um and it could feel emotions it could feel impulses but i don't think the bat would recognize you know it wouldn't have this kind of uh, reflexive understanding like the way we do when we're angry or sad i don't think it would have that same kind of reflexive understanding it would just work on the impulse that okay this thing is aggressing me i either need to fight it or fly away from it 
and it just immediately acts on that rather than you know our cognitive kind of thing of like okay i'm angry but maybe i should not express it maybe i shouldn't back away from the situation either i suppress it for the time being and work it out later like there's there's not that much um cognitively as well as through the entire symbol logical kind of thing that i was talking about i guess so, it's just something I, i kind of just want to interject yeah cats are incredibly smart and i i, I know no, you picked that but, uh, that thing but i've i uh, it just reminded me of an interview i listened to with uh, an expert mm. on bats uh, from the ologies mm. podcast that we were speaking about earlier where he was yeah. talking about interactions that he's had with bats that are uh the kind of really get you to think how intelligent a lot of these creatures are that right, right. we just aren't observing and it also ties mm-hmm. into something that is discussed in this uh book which is whether consciousness is uh is it that capability of doing that higher order like abstract thinking or is mm-hmm. it just the ability to make like for us to perceive that that uh, objects actions i'm using the word object intentionally to include robots as well yeah that yeah. objects actions as seeming intentional yeah i mean uh, so i was just using a bat because um, the the paper i was referring to that brought up the what it's like to um, that that entire phrase is called what is it like to be a bat by thomas nagel and it's it's just one of the most influential papers in philosophy of mind so like the bat is me talking about the bat was just a cute way of referring to that <laughs> oh yeah, yeah no 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 uh, fair but like i also just wanted to bring up because a lot of people uh might not have had yeah. the opportunity to work that closely with some of these creatures so when you look at it afar you might not really get mm. a chance to understand that being's sense of symbolisms and yeah, tendencies yeah. and uh, habits and the fact oh, that I it mean, can build habits you're talking about so you're talking about a mammal so i mean not not obviously oh, you're not talking about a cricket are, bat i i mean, <laughs> i was talking about a mammal like the bat itself obviously like yeah. a mammal but but i'm saying like like mammals have a certain level of cognitive evolution anyway right like they have the neocortex and so on so yeah. I talk oh sorry placental mammals have like the neocortex and like they have higher thinking and a lot of cal- cognitive abilities so i think most most people who do watch a lot of nature documentaries kind of have inklings of how smart a lot of animals can be yeah but do you want to know something super cool jumping spiders have been like they've been studied recently a lot and um, i think there was there was this neuroscience article i was reading that was talking about how jumping spiders have this insane amount of um precognition as well as just cognitive abilities to like strategize actually have an attack plan from like days in advance like they will they like stake out their prey see how what's like the best angle to approach they'll do all of this before like the actual hunt and like they strategize they're able to like gauge threat not just based on whether you're bigger than them and smaller and whether you aggressively move but also based on like your overall body language which is why like a lot of jumping spiders will actually come up to you and just chill on your hand mm-hmm. if you if you like like even if you move around a little fast and like a little like jerkily they can judge whether you're like aggressing or whether you're aggressive towards them or not and they'll get on your hand 
very, very happily if you want to just put them outside. They're somehow able to read body language as well. And like, there's there's been a ton of stuff. So like, even insects and like shrimps and like, like normally creatures that we don't really attribute a lot of intelligence to, they've been seen doing things that completely confound how intelligent we think they are. Like, they're just beyond that. So, sorry, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. That's something I want to tie in back to robotics now. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, sorry. Uh, this is another thing that I, I read in the book. Uh, if an object was to be given sensors, cameras, actuators, and some way to communicate, even if it's like some sort of basic communication with the environment, uh, perhaps a system of, uh, you know, uh, reward or punishment based on certain actions that might be mm-hmm. either programmed in uh, through software in a robot or might be, a, you know, a cycle of hormones and chemicals in other natural systems. Uh, there are these theories that if you just have that much consciousness uh, will sort of emerge because the being will start to understand or like interpret those different action pathways uh, in a way that will make it like, you know, there's these sort of tendencies and and patterns will sort of come come through right. on what the object, the, the robot or the, uh, or the animal is going to do. Yeah, I mean, that's also the thinking in a lot of uh, paleontology, right? Convergent evolution, that there are body plans and actions and like hunting behaviors that just evolve the same way across different species that are not tied to each other at all because they are the most efficient for that time or for that style. Exactly. And I I feel like even with AI, if we start designing systems that work analogous to how we interact with the world around us, like convergent evolution, maybe man-made evolution at that point, but it would be convergent for them to like start behaving in similar ways just because that's what we're doing. But uh, that that comes back to that thing of like, how much are we projecting, you know? Yeah. How much are we projecting our view of our experience and our understanding of the world onto animals when we study them through neuroscience or onto AI when we're doing things such as trying to develop a general intelligence or, you know, even natural language processing. How much are we projecting onto them? And does that like, does that take away from the empirical evidence that we claim to have? Mm -hmm. I I think that's just like a super interesting question to bring up. Yeah, that also connects into these things that might be, might sound uh, very, you know, not sciencey to a lot of uh, traditionalists, but things like, plant neurobiology and stuff where people are studying uh, behaviors in plants, communication Mm. strategies and intelligence of plants, um, right? I think, so the book I was discussing, I think a few episodes back, Metazoa, Mm -hmm. there was an episode on, uh, sorry, not a, why am I saying an episode? There was a chapter, (laughs) a chapter on plants. Um, but I mean, he didn't go too much into depth because his focus was on the animal kingdom. But he did he did devote an episode, uh, a, a chapter <laughs> to plants where he was talking about how how deep like a connective root can go. Like plants communicate through each other, through like roots and like 
there's like a vast amount of communication that happens within the plant itself from um, the root to the trunk to like the the leaves and the the branches and it's 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 a lot slower and a lot more alien than what animal communication feels like but that doesn't mean plants aren't living you know like and they have life in the way that we traditionally think of which yeah. is you know active life yeah and it's really interesting to like also have plant neurobiology like you said yeah there's also this huge uh, kind of uh, the the same thing that you were talking about how we are projecting our mm-hmm. human centric understanding of consciousness on these things like right. anthropomorphizing them uh yeah. there uh, so uh, again the, like there's just so much covered in this i haven't even finished the book yet but there's so much covered in that book oh. where there was a section where the author was uh, on a panel discussion with this uh, one plant neurobiologist and a bee uh, expert and the mm-hmm. plant new, and like one of the questions that came up was Uh, are you anthropomorphizing the way you're looking at these uh, studies right and right. the way they reasoned it is that rather than anthropomorphizing uh, or like trying to take plant intelligence and make it sound or connected to the way that humans think uh, mm-hmm. what they were trying to do is make people realize that maybe we are overly anthropomorphizing everything including ourselves and we're trying to make like right. bring us down uh to the point of like maybe we aren't that different from plants so Which, so instead of anthropomorphizing those things you're saying we're naturalizing ourselves exactly yeah so this is uh, Which, that like that's why this connects back to your the naturalist uh thoughts of like making yeah. uh like the air a Pers- yeah, yeah, personified yeah. Go. god like vayu or whatever right <laughs> thank you <laughs> we went full circle you you put the words in uh but yeah i think so that's I, that's, I, that's that's what the thing was yeah so the, the they call this uh, there's this term that i read up about called distributed intelligence which Ooh. talks about how uh it's something similar to what we were talking about earlier where these patterns emerge but if you had several actors uh let's say they kind of similar let's say you have a forest of trees of mostly the similar kind of variety uh looking at how uh this maybe there are pockets where the soil has more minerals that are suitable for their mm-hmm. growth and looking at how the trees start to like as a unit if you're talking about the tens of thousands of trees all as one if you start realizing that they are concentrating their growth in certain areas uh that's what these scientists are trying to think of as their uh, mm. process of movement it might not be the same i move my hand back and forth type right. movement it's more of across generations we're starting to to go towards this location because our networks have sort of identified this as having more nutrition mm. and this i think there's also there's also a really inter- interesting thing of how a similar kind of um, distributive intelligence evolved in eusocial insects so mm-hmm. ants we we look at ants as like this paradigm of eusociality right like they have a queen 
they have like very specialized classes like a worker a warrior um then people who stay back and nurse the larvae they have like very specialized um roles in a society that's very hierarchical and it's the same thing with bees um i think certain kinds of wasps are also eusocial there's like a bunch of insects that are eusocial right and like this kind of distributive intelligence this eusociality evolved um i think convergently multiple times so like there were there were ants that hunted in groups but weren't eusocial and then they they real, then like slowly it became more efficient for them to trans to like transition into eusociality then that species wiped out and another group that wasn't closely related to that group at all also went about that same plan even though they had a completely different um lifestyle so like one would have been you know um what, what like one group would have been predatory like they hunt other other insects the other one was like they they just cut leaves and they harvest fungi and that that spec- that specific fungus is their food and so they farm it basically and i think it's really interesting like to to see if there's a way to compare these kinds of convergent evolutions of what we know is a certain form of distributive intelligence in like ants and i think even the naked mole rat mm. which is the only eusocial mammal mm. so like it, i think it's really interesting to see if there's a way that these like this this plant distributive intelligence and what we know as animal distributive intelligence there is there like a correlate between them is there like a way they work in in similar ways to better understand the mechanics of how plants seem to like gravitate towards more nutrition rich areas as an active thing rather than just being like okay the conditions are just better so it's a coincidence yeah. overall yeah yeah I, yeah again not qualified to talk but that there's there's so much to look into but the the point that i was uh, also starting to move towards is how this connects back to technology as in if Mm -hmm. we had these distributed networks of let's say a a robot that can do very simple tasks uh Mm -hmm. maybe it's some sort of uh, robot that's just going around the streets and picking up trash and throwing it in your bin and it also has the capabilities to communicate with other robots in its neighbor uh, like just surrounding areas by bluetooth or something so you mm-hmm. know the range is only going to be a few feet uh, for example yeah. a few meters away from it so it's not like it can broadcast messages to the entire network right, how right. much like with something I get I'm simpl- uh, oversimplifying how uh, difficult it actually is to make robots there but with something like that how much intelligent behavior in quotes are we going to uh, see emerge from that it's a fairly simple straightforward system are we going to see systems that are able to like mm. are, are going to be I think, ter- I think- wasn't there a distributed network like that which is why amazon's alexa got in the trouble it got in like 2 3 years ago um which was that each alexa device in every home was constantly sharing data and predictions and everything to other alexa devices within a certain range yep like they were just building like this big database like a local database that was then like further processed by this collection and then like uploaded to a larger thing yeah 
yeah that was intentional behavior at least so i feel like mm. that is slightly different because that was okay yeah, that yeah. was oh, explicitly yeah, so, designed into the products uh, to right, share right. this type of da- data and then pool it and then improve the machine learning model and mm. then send that back to the devices which is like a very clear straightforward yeah. workflow if we just keep things at this i'm just talking about as like non technologists like if you were right. trying to study those robots as an anthropologist mm-hmm. or a sociologist with no understanding of how robots work i feel like there would be patterns in communication in routines in the things that you would expect to see from mm. devices with higher intelligence and that to show uh maybe understanding like when and where is the best place to cross the road uh mm-hmm. what what times are trash most likely available like let's say if school ends at 3 pm uh, and there's a, a, a like a bakery or a chat shop right opposite and a lot of kids mm-hmm. throw that uh, throw wrappers at like 3:30 is the right. robot going to start, even though it has no real explicit programming of this the only thing it knows to like pick up trash it. and throw it is it going to know to come there only like at 4 4 o'clock or whatever right right that that level of intelligence like it's bound to emerge and when it's scaled up to such a high degree i feel like it would become clearer and clearer the bigger patterns of what's going on and i feel like we would right. again imbue it or look at it as a more intelligent uh network of things even if it is relatively straightforward uh because it's doing yeah. things that's not explicitly programmed for us, which is why yeah again I'm... like i was going to say like you're talking i was going to ask you like are you talking about emergent actions but it like i don't even think this is emergent i because this would just be the robot like fine tuning its own efficiency right so exactly. it's not technically like its behavior is not emerging or anything it's just fine tuning its behavior it's more of how But, we are perceiving the action yeah. it is kind of like it's built to do things uh, in a right, kind right, of right. optimal way but it's just how are we going to perceive those actions and what is the if, like and i think implication of that I, yeah and i think like my intuitive thing of saying like oh were you talking about emergent behavior kind of hits that nail on the head which is like we probably would start imbuing it with more like intelligent kind of um terminology you know mm. like oh you know this little guy here he started figuring out that he should come here only at this time yeah. damn you know that's smart of him kind of thing you know we we start like exactly. talking about these robots more like that you know and that's interesting and i think um this actually leads into we've spoken about zima blue before i think it's which is oddly uh, familiar It, it, so it's an episode on love death robots and the reason i'm bringing it up is um so you were talking about like a distributive intelligence yeah. whereas um i think zima blue is this kind of um it's like an iterative intelligence okay which is so it, like the the core sorry um wait before before i start explaining everything spoilers please if you haven't watched this episode stop right now watch it and then get back i promise you one The episode's animation is absolutely gorgeous. Um to the story is brilliant and is like you will enjoy what or you'll understand this conversation a lot better if you watch it. Um 
I'll, I'll also be honest, I have not watched this episode. Oh, you should then. Um, <laughs> but anyway, to spoil it for you, because uh, fine, sadly, fine. I can't. I can't offer you the same amount of consideration as our viewers. <laughs> I've taken three years to watch the first twelve episodes of the show, even though I love it. But it's it's fine. I don't. I'm not. Oh bothered. no! This is in season still, one. I, I know, but like I've been mean, like I season one has taken me three years. I've watched one episode every six months. Oh my months. god, dude! You should you should honestly sit and watch like. I know it's like fifteen like minute episodes, but still, so like good. I just I I don't know. It's just it gets me to think too much, and I don't like that about. Yeah, like, that's, that's not what I'm looking at from that Netflix. That is true, um, but anyway, so Zima Blue is basically the story of like this pool cleaning, like this robot that scrubs the pool of this inventor, and um, she keeps like building the robot so it can do its job more efficiently. So you know, it starts off just by like robotically cleaning every part of the thing constantly, and then it starts getting more intelligent and like programming a. And like it starts like laying out a path, like okay, during this day, this is the part I should clean because that's gonna get the di- that's gonna get dirty the most. Then I can clean like the bottom of the pool and all a little later, mm-hmm. and and she's like slowly starts I- like iterating on its intelligence and making it smarter so it can do its job better, so on and so forth. And at some point, the robot becomes human, mm-hmm. but. I mean, and by becomes human, I mean like it's able to actually like put out art, like have philosophical conversations, do what we would consider are pretty much restricted to the realm of humanity, mm-hmm. at least currently. But so so like that's the fight. That's like the that's the story we get at the end of the episode about what about what this what this um thing is. But at the beginning of the episode, we are told the story that Zima is this guy who, you know, he he decides, you know, I I need to I need to augment myself, because being a human alone isn't enough. So he starts changing out his skin to be like this this um incredibly durable thing, so he can go to like volcanic planets and like commune with the cosmos and everything. Then he he increases his sensory um. Like the the spectrum of colors he can see and everything, he increases that through cybernetic augmentations, mm-hmm. and it it's it's the super interesting um, take on two different ways of um or, or two different looks at identity itself, where one is iterative identity, where over time, because you are given more responsibility, more scope, and just more freedom to do the things that you need to do, you you necessarily have to take more you necessarily get more agency and have to develop an identity in order to say okay i need to plan this i need to plan that and this is how i'm going about my routine mm-hmm. whereas the other is this form of identity where you iterate on your body while still keeping your fundamental um for lack of a better word mental identity as one and I don't know. There's like this really interesting juxtaposition between both sides of iterative intelligence, and like how I want I want to like talk about that for a second. It, like it maybe sounds not too it long. sounds like a ship of Theseus thing. I don't know how to pronounce it. Theseus. The- yeah, yeah. Theseus. Theseus. Yeah. Yeah. Like the where you, you're just like upgrading sections of the body and the everything about it one at a time right at what point is it still the same 
right? being or object that you originally started out with and at uh, what time does it qualitatively change because yeah. i think i think for the most part when when you talk about the ship of theseus problem as purely relegated to the realm of the ship mm. i think you could say that for the most part it's still the same ship because yeah. you're not looking at the ship as um has a collection of like the the boards and like the heel and the keel the keel and everything yeah. like you're just looking at it as the ship as the broad concept so swap, swapping out individual parts and replacing them doesn't necessarily change anything but when you look at things like you know augmenting your 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 the augmenting the spectrum of colors you can see and the the range of sounds you can hear augmenting Or, your skin to be that much more durable to keep it I with the the ship example if you started out with mm-hmm. a wooden large classical ship that right. at least is in my head and i feel like it's probably it in most people like, said if you're thinking of the ship of yeah. theseus once and then you still start shipping it out to like fiberglass and like adding a motor yeah, you and all convert that. it point, to the right. titanic uh by slowly yeah, making yeah. metallic upgrades at what right, point right. does it switch from being the ship of theseus and become to the, the titanic? titanic yeah like at what point does that transition happen is there a point where that transition happens at all or is it just that there's the ship of theseus and the titanic and in between is a wholly different entity altogether correct and yeah so i think i think like questions of intelligence like genuinely or, or not even intelligence at this point because um when when we talk about distrib- like the distributive network and and so on that you were talking about with like the trash cleaning robots i feel like at some point they develop identities right mm-hmm. even if it's not even if it's not like identities for themselves like they develop identities to us and yes. that in turn influences their behavior because then maybe we start like maybe we start being a bit more considerate you know maybe the kids are like oh this poor robot has to pick up all the trash outside this chat shop that we frequent after school you know we should we should start putting stuff in the bin so that it doesn't have to clean up after us as much okay right so like it like it may not influence the robot's identity as as identity itself but it completely changes its behavior because you know after a point maybe the robot's like okay there's not much trash here i should move somewhere else where there's more trash so i'll have more utility not in as many words but you know just programming alone would maybe move it like that i kind of have a question now uh, in yeah? most uh, or popular schools of uh, philosophy is identity mm-hmm. considered objective or subjective is it something that Ooh. is just like a person or an object's identity is just like it is or is it completely dependent on the way that the observer perceives it so i think hmm i think as far as as far as identity in the classical sense which is you know i identify as this or like you know that kind of thing the personal identity is very much subjective in the sense that it's up to the subject um to like put forth an identity but that's mainly for humans um objective identity is mostly just what we glean through science um so a tiger's objective identity would be like the study of its biomechanics the fact that it's a predator which hunts through ambushing and stealth the fact that it's a big cat 
the fact that it's a feline and it's usually solitary, all of those things fall under an objective identity, which is just recognizing its behaviors, recognizing its morphology and its 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 place within a natural world. Um, but I think when it comes to, I'm assuming you ask this question for something like AI, where at some point we're going to like have to think about whether they have identity or not, right? Yeah, exactly. Because... Because that would be the leading if, question. Exactly. If identity is a mixture of the objective identity of what we know scientifically, <laughs> theoretically, what it is. And also for, yeah. co- combined with the observation of what it is doing yeah. and how it is. Uh, then mm-hmm. that's really, it creates something deeper to think at on how we interact with robots, whether it's something uh, like a Roomba uh, vacuum cleaner right. robot that's just like going around your house you know objectively it's a robot that's designed to bump into walls and then turn around right. 15 degrees and then bump into the next wall and keep cleaning. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of Roomba owners will also start to give it a sense of uh, identity as in, oh, the Roomba hates yeah. going under the corners. It's scared of the uh, the yeah, darkness yeah, yeah. or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you start providing it My aunt it does that. that. And <laughs> My aunt does that. Exactly. I, 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 I've seen, maybe not the Roomba, like, I, I don't know if I've seen what the Roomba exactly, but it's just something that I felt like is kind of relatable, but like with, with the Alexa and with a lot of yeah, other yeah, yeah. devices that we interact with, we do kind of put those kind of... Uh, characteristics and i just want to like internalize is that is is that problematic in how uh, uh like well i don't is that I, cause for I concern on are we bra- like like lowering our sort of need for awareness on how we are interacting with these uh um, i don't think so i think you know personification is just an easy way for us to bring like the way I think we refer to Roombas and all currently at least it's more just for like entertainment sake or like for levity's sake yeah like we we personify it just because it's a regular household object and I think a lot of us end up personifying like our laptops or you know I think I I personify like my guitar and my keyboard like I've given them names (laughs) you know no, so the reason I called it uh, possibly problematic is because a lot of people mm-hmm. have trouble with coming to terms that uh, robots and machines can be, yeah. Uh, yeah, sort of like de- like dealt with as pers- like personalities of kinds. I, I don't yeah. know what other term to use, but uh, a but word. I think so. That that's definitely like objective identity, and that we are imbuing the object with an identity. But I think the the true test of when something becomes problematic is when something has a subjective identity. That is, it can say that I feel like this, mm-hmm. or like it can communicate in some way that I can feel like this. But we still impose an identity on it like like I, I think an easy example is you know if you have a family pet like a dog or a rabbit or a cat you know they can very easily express their identity through behavior you know certain dogs are incredibly energetic and sociable and you know they want attention and like 
that's how they express themselves. You know, they'll come up to you for tactile connection and so on. Mm-hmm. Similarly with certain cats, similarly with certain rabbits. Other dogs, other cats, other rabbits may be a little more aloof. Like, okay, listen, we want our own time. We'll come to you when we want attention, but like, do not impose on our space. And, you know, when you observe them, you don't impose an identity on them. You are learning their subjective identity, right? Mm. I think the problematic part is when you start imposing an objective identity, which is, you know, the the behaviors you see from the Roomba. Mm. While it while it may not just have it may not have an expression, to you know like oh, express so itself. You're saying it's problematic if we are kind of supposing its identity for it without it having the ability yeah. to express that to us. Exactly, it. exactly. Okay. While it may have an identity, but it can't express it in any meaningful way to us. Let me ask you this, so, or I, I don't know how I'm going to phrase it as a question, but. There was a, a very recent uh, case that came out of Google. The the sentient AI. Yes, where there uh, was this uh, uh, like machine learning researcher that I think he was working mm-hmm. with a natural language processing model at Google, and after having asked the model or provided the model with a series of queries regarding the mind and thinking and mm-hmm. consciousness and. Uh, abstract topics of discussion where uh, he was asking about how the model was created or maybe how it feels. I don't remember the exact uh, queries. And he was (laughs) very uh, convinced by the responses that it was sentient because it was clearly communicating to him in a language that he understands that, hi, I can think. I am able to understand what you're asking and provide a good response to it. That seems very, very convincing that I'm able to truly understand Mm. what you're talking about. Uh, A huge community had like backlash against it because Mm -hmm. uh, they were saying it's just a rule based engine. It's uh, the model has looked through a bunch of like billions of uh, sentences yeah. in the English language from all sort of data sources and is just pulling in what it thinks to be the most likely reasonable response to the questions that you have asked. Uh, right. That is not a sense of, uh, of thinking. And mm-hmm. when you just like said earlier that if the machine or object is able to communicate with you what its identity is meaningfully, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That is its objective, uh, uh, subjective, That's a ident- subjective, subjective identity. identity. Yep. Uh, is <laughs> so again, yeah. So just tying it up. I I don't know how to frame the question, but what do you think of this? I, I I think, I think so. So there's two ways to respond to it, and I mean, obviously, being being the the guy that I am, I'm gonna do the, the devil's advocate thing and argue that it is sentient. Yes. Yeah. Like. So, so when people talk about, oh, it's just a rule-based machine, dude, so are we. We are probabilistic automatons. That's like a really, really popular way of thinking about mm-hmm. humans. You know, we just work on probabilities. The probability of me wanting to do a podcast was pretty high because I have a lot of things to talk about. Because the probability of me getting into a field like philosophy was really high. Because I didn't like engineering. Why didn't I like engineering? Because the probability of me 
not liking engineering was you know like like there's like a bunch of things where each probability leads to a certain decision being made and you know we we suppose that we have intelligence we suppose that we have like like all these highfalutin concepts such as consciousness and so on what's the but, did you say falutin highfalutin yeah I've never heard Sorry. that. Sorry. <laughs> the the British is really coming out, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. Uh actually it's not even a thing I learned here. It's just I I've, I've been wanting to use that term for a long time. Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we we think we have these high funda concepts. But I mean, it doesn't have to be the case, you know? I, like in the notes you sent me from God human animal thing, there's like the eliminativist school of thought. Mm-hmm. which is i mean that's entirely possible which is where like this idea of probabilistic automatons comes from you know like yeah. we we think that we have consciousness but that's just because the like our actions are so complex that so we have to conceptualize of an identity but there's not necessarily one mm-hmm. you know there's not necessarily this this discrete thing called consciousness it's just a it's just how we have to make sense of our behaviors as probabilistic automatons mm-hmm. which is um which is what daniel which is what daniel dennett um said in his book from like from back from bark to bacteria and back yeah again one of the best title one of the best titles like i've ever seen but his entire thing is just you know our our consciousness is just the gui you know it it restricts it restricts all the information that our body has into just what we need to know to be efficient at what we choose to do mm. and that's it so consciousness is not really this discrete thing it's just a need to know principle that our body ha- that our brain has kind of made it's just a graphical interface for lack of a better analogy mm. and i i honestly think that's one of the best analogies for consciousness like it it's super powerful but yeah, yeah. I, i think I there mean, was a the, a quote that i saw saying uh, that daniel dennett said the mind is illusory as in just yeah 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 it's it's a it's a user control no sorry what's it oh, i forget the exact term he used in the book but yeah it's 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 a user something illusion you know like it, it's just because there's so much information that we take in through our sensory apparatus mm-hmm. like there's absolutely no way any processing unit would be able to like make sense of all the absolute rich sensations that we we have through a stream of consciousness you know yeah like like it's it's like my body painting the sunlight hitting me staring at my laptop looking at notes while having a bottle of water in hand like this is just basic stuff that i'm turning my attention to mm-hmm. but there's so much more such as like my internal bodily mood my metabolism the the way i'm breathing and like just a bunch of things and no processing unit would be able to do all of that concurrently right. so the brain just restricts everything to just what we need to know to do what we're doing at the time and that's it mm. so it's an illusion it's literally just the gui because the gui doesn't do anything you know like like the icons on your laptop aren't the programs themselves the program is the back end it's like the big chunk of code being run yeah 
and the GUI and just makes it easy for you to read what you need to know to make sense of the program. Nothing exactly. else. And very likely also the 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 backend the program is capable of doing a lot more than is exposed on the GUI. Yeah, yeah, which is why you have developer features and like beta testing features and all on your uh, Android or iPhone. You know. Yeah. At this point, I have no idea whether we're talking about the mind or. Uh, no, 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 we're still talking soft. about the mind. <laughs> I'll get back. See, that's the reason it's such an interesting and powerful analogy. It is, it is. It's that because like when you when you show like when you show even even like code, right? Isn't isn't like the entire back end. <laughs> yes. Cuz that's like that's also just the it, it, it's just how it modulates the internal electrical switches of the hardware. Yes. Which is fundamentally the brain substrate, right? So the mind is essentially just backend code being abstracted to a GUI. That is all consciousness is. Consciousness is, is just a very, very specific combination of beeps and boops. You heard it here yeah. first. Yeah. Uh, definitely not boops, first, because, but uh, probably first that way first. <laughs> no, no, no. I think uh, I think that specific sentence you heard it here first. <laughs> not the concept necessarily, but the yeah. sentence. Yeah, that's us. Like like Descartes has been saying that uh, all animals are automata since. Yeah, we're automata for sure. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he didn't realize that we are also automata. So yeah, um, I think I mean, I at, think least, honestly, at least that's the. We can do an episode where I. We can do an entire episode where I rag on Descartes. <laughs> like that, that's honestly something I'd love to do because, man, while he was influential, some of his stuff is just like, dude, I can't believe you thought that. Hey, I mean, it's, like, it's like, very not in hard. a bad way. It's just like confoundingly dumb. It's very hard to get into the mind of someone at a time so culturally removed yeah. from the time that we live in right now. But, I mean, yeah, but also like... Okay, like very specifically, there's this letter that um, a student of his wrote to him saying like, okay, you say that there is a specific part of our brain or like in our body where the mind interacts with the brain. And you say like, okay, the mind is made of like this specific non-corporeal kind of entity or, or non-physical kind of Did he believe substance. in that elixir, uh, what is it called? Uh, Not the ether, elixir theory. Ether, no, no. ether. No, 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 no. I think that was Aristotle. That was Aristotelian for space. Okay. Like that was part of an Aristotelian ontology and it was only used for space. It wasn't like the mind was made of that. Oh, uh, no, I've definitely um, heard of uh, uh, people saying that the consciousness is also made out of ether or a similar substance. Oh, no, no. So that's that's definitely like, that's definitely uh, part of what, like it's part of the school that Descartes founded, mm. but it's not necessarily Descartes views itself. Ah, okay. Interesting. Right, right. So, so Descartes was like the progenitor of like substance dualism. Basically, like the mind is made of a different non-physical kind of substance. That sounds. But it in substance dual dualism sounds like someone who's doing acid and cocaine at the same time. Yeah, my my weekend life. <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad, you didn't hear it. Um. No, no, no. But like the the thing is, right? Like substance dualism, the way Descartes found it, founded it was um, the mind is made of like its own separate non-physical matter and it interacts with our physical body and the physical brain at like this very specific spot in our body. 
so so you know this um one of his students writes to him being like okay listen you say this how can you prove it you know and like Descartes has this incredibly convoluted way of reasoning it and she's like if you have to go through all of these loops to justify it it seems to me like that's not the case at all cuz like the level of mental gymnastics you're going through does not make this the most rational and easy solution therefore you cannot be right you need uh, to be a mental gymnast to look into your own inner eye <laughs> just contortionism <laughs> But yeah, dude, like getting back to it, like getting back to the entire thing after ragging on Descartes for like a couple of seconds here. Um I actually wait, how long have we been recording? It's uh, an hour and 22. Well, I mean, I think I think this is about tying it up now. So, getting back to it. Identity is really difficult to study. Consciousness is incredibly nebulous because we just don't understand it well enough yet. Like just the idea of it. I think we've kind of, we've we've kind of delved into fairly newer ideas using the sentient AI example and so on. Mm. It's just like how do we tell whether something is really conscious? How do we tell whether we are conscious? You know, and All what are the questions. implications of accepting that maybe there's nothing that special about our consciousness? Like, is yeah. that going to cause us to interact with? things around us differently is that going to cause like a sort of sense of like disillusionment or like being like oh we're no longer that special uh, yeah i mean and- i i hope it becomes more of a thing yeah. um i mean you know i mean i'm not saying the humans aren't extraordinary we are we are evolutionary miracles to be very honest there's there's a lot of things that humans do that just that have led to us getting to this uh this place in evolution where we no longer need an objective world we can rely on just symbols like our entire well-being today is not based on hunting and foraging and so on it's based on making sense of symbols that we have come up with right that's what human survival is now which is i think just incredibly it, it's so complex like like there's there's no other creature on the planet that has reached this state and it's because of miracles of evolution such as being able to have a tongue and like this kind of like jaw movement that allows us to have these complex sounds and shapes you know it's the fact that we became these incredibly social um creatures and were able to domesticate and tame other animals it it comes from the fact that we realize how to harness natural resources in a way that not many other animals do all of this like and and that's not even mentioning just the basic physical traits that we have such as being able to run constantly just because we sweat as our method of cooling rather than having to pant like you know cats and dogs and like a lot of other animals like sweating is the way we cool down and regulate our body temperature and because it's such an efficient method of cooling us down ancient hunters like this is back when homo sapiens had just like just evolved they used to just sprint their prey down or like marathon run their prey down until it died of heat stroke that's honestly like one of the most successful hunting methods that we had mm-hmm. then you know the way our body centered and all of that so we can throw objects 
be as you know as bipedal creatures like there's so many things that have led us to this this kind of place i forgot where i went where i was going with this and if you're a non-human creature listening to this podcast and making sense of what we're talking about and perhaps want to pitch in with where your, was i going with this entire with thing? your uh, perspective on on this topic please reach out to us on twitter at dumb dive on instagram at dumb dive podcast or send us an email uh, dumb dive at gmail.com we will try our best to respond to you in a way that uh, sees that makes sense because i'm not sure how yeah. i will handle uh, getting a response from, yeah. the, from a Can non-human entity on any of these platforms <laughs> looking forward to it Yeah, I'm Pranav and I promise next episode I will remember what I meant to say. My name is Arvind. Thanks for listening.